the Blue Collar Zen Podcast, recorded here at the Detroit Zen Center. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we will be uh, reading and then talking about the second part of the story of Lehman Pusal. I'm going to read the uh, the last paragraph of the first part of the story um, as a segue, but uh, encourage you to listen to the first part if you haven't already. So Lehman Pusal uh, decides to marry um, the young girl who begged him uh, to stay with her and save save her. So Lehman Pusal and his two Dharma friends decided to share a pot of pine tea together in farewell. Their feelings were heavy because they were very close and had spent more than 15 years training. Young Zhou and Young He were so disappointed and did not approve of Pusal's decision to renounce his monastic vows and marry this young girl. But Pusal was very clear in his intention, and he said warmly to his friends, The way of Buddha is confined neither to the monks and nuns nor to the laity, nor is it confined to the quiet countryside or the noisy marketplace. The intention of all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas is to help all beings in their pursuit of peace and happiness. My dear friends, please go and travel widely and train under different masters. And please return to me when you have awakened and teach me what you've learned. Thus they parted. Mr. and Mrs. No Resentment consulted with a local shaman and picked a propitious day for Pusal and Wonderful Flower to marry. On the wedding day, villagers gathered to see the ex-Buddhist monk marry the girl who started to speak after having been mute for 18 years. Pusal disrobed and donned secular dress proper for the occasion. Wonderful Flower was dressed in traditional wedding clothes and looked as beautiful and happy as she could be though she did not show her feelings outwardly according to decorum. Mr. and Mrs. No Resentment greeted guests happily and received their gifts. After the marriage, Pusal treated Mr. and Mrs. No Resentment as though they were his own parents and looked after them with great care and respect. Gardening and farming were new to him, but he worked hard. Every day was a full day for Pusal. Still, he had to find time for his daily devotions, just as when he was with his two monk friends, Young Jo and Young He. He got up every morning at three. It was still very dark when there was no moonlight, and he had to be very careful not to wake up his new wife. When he came back after washing up, At the well outside, he realized that there was no Buddha statue toward which he could direct his devotions. So he went out and found two big stones, one almost five times bigger than the other. 
When his wife woke up at daybreak, Pusol spoke to her and got her permission to enshrine the two big stones in the corner of their room. He cleaned and washed the stones carefully and brought them inside. When he placed one on top of the other, they roughly resembled a stone Buddha, and he was very glad. Every morning he would offer a bowl of water before the stone Buddha and perform prostrations. Then he would sit in meditation till daybreak. He was very careful and very quiet during all of this. But one morning, when his wife reached over to hug him in her sleep, she found no one there. Alarmed, she woke up. Then she saw something bobbing up and down in the dark. It was no other than her husband doing prostrations before the two big stones. When she saw this, she was seized with anger. She threw her quilt over him with a shout, Stop this nonsense! Don't pretend you are a monk now! When it became light, Wonderful Flower got up and threw out the water bowl and the two big stones. Now Pusol had lost both Buddha and altar. Then it occurred to him that Wonderful Flower was a Buddha, a living one. Why did I not think about this before, he scolded himself. Of course, better to do prostrations before a living Buddha than a stone Buddha. So when he got up the following morning, he went outside and picked up the broken bowl. He brought spring water in the broken bowl and carefully placed it in front of the sleeping Buddha and started again doing prostrations. One morning, when Wonderful Flower woke up early, she found Pusol sitting motionless right in front of her nose. Afraid that he had gone out of his mind completely or was dead, she started crying. Pusol came out of Samadhi and tried to console her. She began to cry more loudly, and between sobs she reproached him, saying, You're no good. You're no good, Pusol. Just felt terrible. So he started apologizing. He began bowing before her in accordance with the Korean custom of forgiveness. This, however, upset her even more. Men and husbands traditionally do not bow before women. So she flew into a rage and screamed at him, Get out of here! Get out! Completely perplexed, Pusol appealed to her and said, But I am your husband. I married you. No, you're a monk. You don't know how to love a woman, shot back wonderful flower. That's not true. I love all beings, protested Pusol, still perplexed. Oh, you're dumb. I said you don't know how to love women. I love women, too. Oh, you're so dumb. I used to think I was dumb. Now you're dumber than I am. Get out of here. Do your Buddha thing somewhere else. Can I perform my morning devotion somewhere else in the house? Yes, but just don't scare me in the morning. Where can I do my morning devotions? Oh, you numbskull monk. I don't care. Why don't you go build your precious Buddha hall in the stinky cowshed? Can I really do that? Yes, you can. Now get out of sight. Pusol was most happy. He had obtained from his wife permission to build a Buddha altar in the cowshed. Immediately, he got to work cleaning a corner of it. 
Then he realized that he was disturbing the cow who was looking at him with her big, innocent eyes, perhaps wondering what Pusol was doing in her house. So Pusol bowed to her and apologized. He then brought the two big stones and set them up one on top of the other and placed the broken bowl before it. The altar looked fine to him and he was very happy. He turned to the cow and bowed to her in deep gratitude. Every morning before he performed his devotional practice, he bowed to the cow and thanked her. The Dharma room in the cow shed served Pusal very well for his spiritual training. For years, the cow and Pusal shared the shed together in the morning, and they became very good friends. The cow always seemed to be awake, chewing cud. Pusal envied the cow and wishing that he too could always be awake. Eventually, Pusal built a meditation hut next to the cow shed and moved his Dharma room there. Wonderful Flower did not at all like Pusal slipping out of the room in the middle of the night, leaving her cold and alone in bed, but she did not know what to do with the dumb monk. She would put up with it for a while, then she would scold him with a barrage of insulting words. Her favorite insult was, You're neither monk nor layman. You are just no good and nothing through and through. Good for nothing. But Pusal liked that. He thought his wife was describing the wonderful, unobstructed stage of a bodhisattva rather well. So he would always bow and thank her without words. Mr. and Mrs. No Resentment deeply regretted their daughter's behavior. Pusal, he just didn't mind, and he always worked hard in order to support the family. In the years that followed, Wonderful Flower and Pusal had two children, a boy and a girl. The boy's name was Riding Cloud, and the girl's name, Bright Moon. Mr. and Mrs. No Resentment spent most of their time looking after their grandchildren. They doted on them. But they were getting old, and one cold winter, Mrs. No Resentment fell ill. She ran a high fever and passed away five days later. Pusol dug the frozen ground and buried her. Mr. No Resentment wept bitterly and did not eat for ten days. He looked like a man who had been swept away in a flood and driven ashore on an island. He rarely spoke after that, and a year later he died without illness. Again Pusol dug the frozen ground and buried him next to his wife. A few days before he died, Mr. No resentment called Wonderful Flower. He told her that her husband was a bodhisattva and had asked her to treat him with the reverence and respect due a bodhisattva. Wonderful Flower retorted, What's that? This bodhisattva? Is it something like the Buddha which he has been trying to invoke? Whatever it is, it must be something really bad. I can assure you, I have been treating him as well as his dumbness deserves. Mr. No Resentment said no more and died three days later. Fifteen years had passed since Pusol married Wonderful Flower. Pusol knew his karmic tie with the No Resentment family was drawing to an end. After he turned 56 years old, Pusol spent more and more time in his dharma room next to the cowshed. 
Sometimes he was not seen outside for days. Finally, he told Wonderful Flower, riding cloud and bright moon, that he had an attack of paralysis and had to stay in his Dharma room all the time. So saying, Pusol shut himself off from the outside. Two years later, he came out of his Dharma room. He looked fine and healthy. There was no sign of his having suffered a stroke or paralysis. He went around doing the necessary things in his usual, ordinary way. As they grew up, Riding Cloud and Bright Moon learned from Pusol the way of Buddha Dharma. Twenty years now had gone by since Young Joe and Young He parted with Pusol. Having visited different places and trained under different teachers in the north, Young Joe and Young He were passing through Tunung again on their way back to the Cherry Mountains. They were very curious about their Dharma friend Pusol. In the village, they inquired about Mr. and Mrs. No Resentment and learned that he and his wife had passed away several years ago. When they arrived at the old house of Mr. No Resentment, they saw two children playing outside. Young Joe and Young He looked at each other and smiled. How the children closely resembled Pusol, so the monks called out and asked them where their father was. The children said cheerfully to the strangers that their father was in the Dharma room doing the Buddha thing. For that was what their mother used to say whenever they asked her about what their father was doing. The children then took the stranger to the cowshed. The two monks were surprised and puzzled. The children giggled at each other and ran out. Soon Pusol came out of his Dharma room and greeted his old friends. Pusol's happiness knew no bounds. He called Wonderful Flower and the children to greet his old friends and serve them with refreshments. Wonderful Flower knew well that though Pusol was dumb and good for nothing, the two monks were different. At least she knew that they were good for something, so she served them with due attention and respect. Pusol himself attended upon his two friends and made them feel at home. After they had relaxed, they asked each other about their training. Pusol said he had been busy working in the field, looking after his family, and had hardly time for spiritual training. It was then that Young He said in a friendly way, It's been twenty years since you started leading a secular married life. Now you have two children, and they are big enough to run errands and help their mother. Your wife appears strong and capable of handling the household by herself. So join us now in leading a homeless life for the rest of your life. Young He then reminded Pusol of the broken bottle and spilled water, an allusion he made in his poem on the occasion of their leave-taking 20 years ago when Pusol decided to marry Wonderful Flower. Young Joe and Young He urged Pusol to resume spiritual training and pour back in a new bottle the water he had spilled. Pusol thanked his two old friends sincerely for their encouragement, but said quietly, It's been a long, long time since I made distinctions like homeless life and household life. I have seen that our Buddha nature does not change 
in spite of what we do and where we are. So I have done what I could and have no regrets. I follow the natural course of events, but do not seek anything in particular. Thereupon Pusol had his two children bring their three play bottles and fill them with spring water. Then he had the water bottles tied to the beam below the eaves. Pusol turned to his two friends and said, Like our Buddha nature, water does not have a fixed form of its own. So water can be contained in many different shapes of vessels, but it remains the same in its nature and essence. With that, Pusol asked his friends to strike their water bottles with a stick and break them. Their bottles broke and water spilled on the ground. Then Pusol picked up a stick and struck his water bottle. The bottle broke, but the water remained in the air, floating where the bottles had been. The two monks were amazed. Pusol apologized for surprising them this way. He said, I just wanted to show you that the bottles can be broken like our physical body, but water remains free from destruction. It is the same with our Buddha mind. Our Buddha mind is free and not subject to the cycle of birth and death, because it is our unborn mind. Pusol turned to his two monk friends and asked them to help his two children enter the way of Buddha. Then he turned to his children and said, After I am gone, follow the two monks. They are your father's old friends and will look after you hereafter. Study and train in the tradition of Buddhas and all the great bodhisattvas. Attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Do not grieve. I will always be with you in the Dharma. I will be at your side in difficult times and guide and protect you. Please remember what I have said. After that, Pusal turned a wonderful flower and said, I have been happy being with you all this while, but like all things in life, we must part now. Please take care of yourself. Pusol held Wonderful Flower's hand for a short while. Finally, Pusol turned to his friends again and thanked them for coming to see him, and he recited the following verse. Eyes see no sight, no discrimination remains. Ears hear no sound, no dispute remains. Discrimination and dispute, all extinguished. Buddha mind appears of itself for one's refuge. After reciting this verse, Pusol quietly passed away. His body was cremated according to the Buddhist custom. Young He and Yangjo took Pusol's ashes to Chiri Mountain and burned them in an urn in front of wonderful stillness where they had trained together for 10 years and erected a stupa in his memory on the southern hill near the burial ground. After his death, some of the Dharma songs which Pusol composed for people at work were brought to the attention of the Buddhist clergy and circulated. Unfortunately, most had been lost except for two which were written down in Chinese. Four fleeting songs, countless as bamboo shoots, one's family may number. High as a mountain, one's hoard of treasure may be, but alone and empty-handed, one departs at death. Think of it, how empty and futile. 
Daily one travels the dusty road of ambition. The higher one climbs, the closer the end. Death cares not for status and achievement. Think of it, how empty and futile. One's speech may be sweet, one's eloquence thunderous. One's prose may be lofty, one's verses superb. Yet these only strengthen one's illusion of selfhood. Think of it, how empty and futile. Refreshing as a downpour one's dharma talk may be, causing heavenly flowers to fall and stone heads to nod. Yet alone, knowledge cannot save one from birth and death. Think of it, how empty and futile. Eight lines of suchness. This way or that way, let it be. As the wind blows, as the waves rise, let it be. Treat your guest according to your means. Buy and sell as the market bids. Whether porridge or rice, help yourself. Whether right or wrong, let it be. Though things may not suit you well, leave them alone and let them be. After Pusal's death, both Writing Cloud and Bright Moon became devoted Buddhist monks. And to this day, in the city of Buwan, in Chalado, Bright Moon Temple exists, and both children of Pusal are revered throughout Korea. So, Sunim, it's quite a story, and... Um, um, I, but I guess I would like to hear from you what you, you know, what you think about that. About what? Well, about just about Pusol's mind, and he seemed that the the overarching thing for me is that he was so gracious. I guess for me, I was expecting after the first story that somehow he and his wife were going to live happily ever after, and there would be this kind of romantic beauty to the thing, that she would be grateful and and loving and kind, and that he would somehow sort of help her become awakened. Um, and then to read the second part of the story and realize that she became resentful and vindictive. And well, I think that... It was very interesting, but, but he was unmoved, and that... That's very interesting to me. Well, I think that he succumbed to her desire to marry him. Yeah. And it wasn't, from his point of view, going to stop his training. Hmm. And she didn't understand that, of course, because she thought, now he's no longer a monk. He's not going to continue practicing. And I think that should really shed a lot of light for people that it really makes no difference whether you're a monk or a lay person if you live with integrity mm. and honesty then it'll all come out uh, in the most natural unaffected way which is how he lived his life he was basically indifferent to anything that was happening because his mind was completely clear and and he was doing his job to take care of the family, Mr. and Mrs. No Resentment. His wife eventually 
the children. Mm -hmm. And unimpeded mind is what I would say. You, you're hearing a story of what, what that's like. And even his friends, probably when they heard that, uh, uh, those poems that he had produced, uh, which are just beautiful, it's like he was reading uh, the, the Heart Sutra to them, only it was his own words. And it was beautifully, I can just imagine how mm -hmm. they had received that, knowing now that their friend had not given up his training at all, but in fact had excelled because the circumstances were different than living in the mountains where you're kind of safe and sound. And I've said many times that whether you're a monk or not, you know, the, the training takes place in a certain kind of surrounding, and that's always important to you. But it doesn't limit, it shouldn't limit you to that practice, is what I tell people when they come here, yeah. that please carry this into your day-to-day -day living, otherwise it's not useful. Yeah. We've complained as Americans, at least I remember I did, that people would go to church on Sunday, and then between Sundays, kind of all hell would break loose. They didn't seem to care about what they were learning in church. Yeah. Well, in in my own life, uh, you know, in relationships that I've had with people, um, you know, really all of my life, um, whether as a monk or before becoming a monk, it seems like... Um, what we do, and it isn't just relationships that are romantic, but you know, relationships in general. What I have found in my own mind and in my own relationships is that you, you in the beginning, and it reminds me of what happened with Pusol. People are quite happy as long as they are getting what they want. And in the early stage of a relationship with another human being, you can often be. Um, infatuated with this idea that this person or this situation is going to make me fulfilled and happy, even a relationship with the spiritual teacher. And um, so the power, I don't know, it's a very, it's a really interesting story, because what I have found often is that people will give you their best under that situation, in that circumstance, they'll kind of, they'll, they'll reveal the very best of themselves, which is authentic you know that those that is the potential of that person they'll you know drive through rainstorms and and uh you know dredge through the forest so to speak to really come to you um but then what happens which is clearly illustrated in this story is that um they find more they find reasons to become disappointed and that now what you're giving is not enough well, it's not what you want. Right. And so in this story with Pusol, his wife, he really gave up and sacrificed quite a bit for her. Um, but he didn't really view it that way. It was just as he is describing, he did what he thought was the right thing. Um, but in her case, rather quickly, she turned on him. But he didn't turn on her. And that that's the really interesting part about well, I think this. the reason for that is that uh, Pusol had disappeared. Yeah. So 
yes, she saw Pusol standing there, but Pusol wasn't tied to it being any particular way. Mm. Like his only desire was to to c continue his practice, which he had done for years and years with his two Dharma brothers. So he fully knew how to practice. Now he had to do it under very different circumstances, but he continued. And I think what you saw over the course of his life there, uh, his selfless action. That's interesting. Like he took care of everything yeah. without right. any regard for himself, right. other than he, he got up at a time when everybody else was sleeping. So right. he was attempting not to disturb. Even he was concerned about the cow and made a relationship with right. the cow, not to disturb the cow, and respecting that he was now living at least temporarily in the cow's house until he could right. build his own Dharma hall. Yeah, it's really, it's almost hard to believe that someone could have um, such a sincerity. Um, but uh, I think that whether the story is, uh, you know, mythical or true, the I think that is a, a wonderful uh, sort of example to attempt to follow that yeah even a cow you'd be concerned about I wonder if you if it occurred to you it did to me during the story that Pusal could have gone a step further or maybe I'm mistaken here and let go completely of his even his own idea of what practice was and sort of forsaken all of the kind of institutional or formal practices bowing to Buddha figures and you know, making a shrine, and just completely served his wife. You know, when she woke up in the middle of the night to hold her husband and he's not there, I can understand a wife or a hus even a husband going, oh, you know, this is not a marriage. This is, I'm married to a monk, so you really have not married me. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I think that you know, he was in bed for quite a bit of time. It's not like he didn't go to bed with her. Right. And largely she was sleeping. It said that at one point she woke up. But there's no... My sense of Pusol is he was taking care of business. He could have been the one making breakfast. I don't hear what wonderful flower, the attitude she was bringing to the situation was an attitude that's very common to us as Westerners. Absolutely. We're annoyed when we're not getting what we want. Exactly. You said that before. Right. And then rather than just let it be, as, as Pusol would say, right. we then, in a sense, attack it. Exactly. The best way that we know how, the right. way that, in this case, she just called him dumb and stupid and all of that. With Most people couldn't withstand that without right. reacting. That's right. And that just reflected his strength and his... I would call it integrity, yeah. that he saw through that, right. like this is a sentient being that that wasn't understanding, so he tried to make adjustments, right. but it, if it came down to her asking him not to practice, because he got her approval, right. yes, go go out and use the cow shed, right. go to your Dharma hall, right. like she, she had given that to him, and yet he worked all day for her. Right. He he was in bed long enough to create two children. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, and I think that, yeah, it, it seems that that is a very common thing, a very natural thing for human beings um, with our kind of self-centered mind. I mean, 
you could sort of see there the opportunity she had to be grateful and to, um, you know, to have such a wonderful partner staying with you and married to you. And treating her kindly. And I mean, treating you we kindly. We have no evidence that yeah. he did anything to disrespect yeah. her so she had in a, the midst of her disrespecting him. That's right. So she had an opportunity there to be grateful and to actually have a quite, a, quite an amazing union. But as we often do, it's hard for us to be appreciative of what we have until it's gone. You know, there's a follow-up part to the story, which we've decided not to read because it's a bit long about the children going on to train and become monks. Well, that's a separate story. Yeah. And in that story, she um, uh, writes her own poem to Pusal, where she basically recognizes that she had been living with a teacher and a bodhisattva all of these years and was really um, unable to appreciate him and is regretful and encourages her two children to pay homage to their father by, by studying the Dharma and so they go on to be um, pretty famous. So it's just a beautiful, you know, and this is a really popular story, a very well-known story in Korea about Layman Pusol and his two kids who became famous monks. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, it even here in our own community over the years, we have, you know, literally, just like this story, had practitioners who decide, you know, to take up, uh, spiritual study pretty seriously and come and sit in the morning and I can think of a couple of vacations where where people have come forward and said I can't come anymore my partner my husband or my wife or my partner doesn't like me leaving early in the morning to come and practice and I have always uh, felt a little confused that a, a partner wouldn't want um, the person that they love to do what is in their own best interest according to them, you know, and find it within them to say, okay, you know, I would prefer for you to be here on a Saturday morning having scrambled eggs with me, but if you prefer to go to the Zen Center and meditate at six o'clock in the morning, you know, more power to you. I'll support that. And when you get home, I'll make you eggs. Like, to me, that would be a really interesting way to think about love versus, oh, I'm not happy because you leaving means I don't get what I want. And I can see this as a really common theme in our culture, this very selfish, you know, um, very fear-based yeah. and uh, very discouraging for people who do try to take up this practice, that their loved ones, their family, even their friends will say, oh, you're going to go and do a retreat for five days or get up early in the morning and, you know, kind of like, um, why would you work that hard? And, uh, you know, take it easy. And... Yeah, that's something that I think is getting worse. You know, we're getting more selfish and more fear-based. And um, I think that, that you have to recognize that um, if you are practicing properly, yeah, then your partner is going to experience the benefit of that. Mm -hmm. And we have some of that in our own community, where the partner who is necessar not necessarily practicing here in the sense that we know the other partner, but they not only approve, but support their partner. And I think it's because how that's improving the way the other partner interacts with them. Yeah, I can see that. So 
I think that when you're seeing the other side of it, where the partner is, is reacting in, let's say, a more negative way toward what you're doing, the first thing you need to do instead of looking at your partner is take a look and see if what you're doing is actually allowing you to do the change so you can serve this person better. Yeah. Or if you could just continue to want, right. which may be what your partner wants, but, but you can't deal with what, what you you have no control over, but you'd have control over yourself. And I think Pusol demonstrates that very beautifully. That's interesting. That he didn't fall into the, the, trap, the trap of resenting her yeah. or, or the whole scene. Well, that's right. And, 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 and I think, you know, the result down the line, which we never necessarily know there's going to be a result, but the two right. children going on, the wife finally recognizing that she was living with a bodhisattva, this is what this is really important. This is so significant. It's now made into a story. That's right. This is it's beautiful. You can't get the result you're trying to get when you want to get it. Right. It's not actually up to you. No, he was doing the right thing with his life and eventually the children and wonderful flower came along and recognized it right. and went on with their own lives in a better way, yeah. honoring this person that had been with them for all these years and birthed them in the case of the children. Yeah, what a great teaching. You know, and in my own mind, I, I can smell the, um, it, this story is kind of helping expose for me a part of my own mind, which I am trying to clean up, this idea that you um, have to, you know, that you can and even should try to figure out how to meet another person's needs. You know how the best way to clean up your mind is? Oh, yeah. Tell me something. Don't try to clean up your mind. It's, <laughs> it will clean up if you leave it alone. Right. Right? Like, I think, and I mentioned that to you at some point, maybe even this morning, that we're always concerned about not the moment that we're in, the next moment, mm. trying to make it better, as if there's something wrong with the moment we're in. As if we have another mind. Yeah, well, it, it's, it's, it's implying there's something wrong with me, that even though our teacher, Shakyamuni, said we're all Buddhas, Yeah. once you learn to trust that, then what could possibly be discouraging or troublesome to a living Buddha? Well, we don't have an answer for that because the answer is nothing. Right. They already recognize they are the absolute perfection. That's the way the, the, the nature has made them. And, and to get there, they just had to allow the transformation to take place. That's what everything that happens in your life, whether it's COVID or disappointment over somebody passing away, is all part of the the texture of transformation yeah and so we just we allow it to unfold and we unfold in that process unless we separate ourselves yeah. from us do you yeah, see that I do. it's like a wave trying to separate itself from the water it can't be done but it can try yeah and then it it doesn't and it eventually returns to the, the water yeah. and is transformed into another wave or something different right this is a metaphor for our lives. I appreciate like this, is, this. This life, this yeah. human life, is a process of transformation. Allow it to happen. Well, I, I appreciate you elevating this conversation 
um, into that teaching and reminding me, you know, as I look at you here across the tea table, you know, it there is nothing else happening. You know, there's two people sitting in a room speaking, you know, into a microphone, having just, you know, told a story. Um, and, yeah, it's it's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking that there is that there is a future that there's another moment coming and that that's where I'll go perfect myself. Yeah. No and doubt. or if I wouldn't have done something back there, you know, you know having regret. And so it's you know being called right back into this moment where you know uh, there's nothing more beautiful Sunam, and I'm really grateful. Um, well, I think for in that. my history uh, the the you know, the very first spiritual book that I laid my hands on yeah. was called Be Here Now. Mm. Like, he was talking about the present moment. And I think that was way back in the, I think around 1970, a little before or after, I'm not sure. But I think since then, yeah, tons of people have been talking about this. I'm right. just one of those many right. who've talked about you're perfect as you are. Just allow it to unfold. You know each day what to do. Right. We, we repeat the same things over and over again. And there's nothing wrong with any of it until we start thinking about it and start expecting something to be different than it is. Right. It's there for, for our development. So would you say then that a remedy, because right now we are just coded, you know, Collectively, you know, in this situation around COVID, we're just coded in fear. Yeah. And a lot of how we're acting, you know, whether we decide to act this way or that way, to wear masks or to avoid, you know, restaurants or to stay home, you know, regardless of how we decide to act, it seems to me that acting out of fear is always leads to trouble in my own case. You know, it's sort of this uh, kind of a blind reaction rather than a, a reaction based on, okay, you know, well, let's, uh, we'll make a decision here. It just isn't the end of the world, yeah. you know. So I wonder, well, I don't wonder. I think what I'm hearing you say is that the only antidote to that, the remedy to, to that, to fear, is to recognize where you are. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, when I was uh, in Albuquerque uh, in a, Vietnamese temple most of them were boat people mm. and we used to talk after the the service together and one of the things that came up was that you know when you hear about the small boats that they were in can on you an explain ocean, about what who when you say boat people I don't know if a lot of the audience would understand well, people uh, Refugees from Vietnam trying to get out and get to Thailand or get someplace where they could be, they and their family could be safe. You're talking about folks that had to flee during the Vietnam War. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And and we called them the boat people in, in that period of time because they were subject to, of course, ocean storms, yeah. pirates Absolutely. who would come and rape and kill and, of course, steal things from them. Terrible. And so I used to ask them, like, how do you survive that? And then... One man said, if even one person stayed calm in the middle of whatever was happening, it changed everything. Yeah.
He said, I always, I'm here because I always long to be that one person. <laughs> well, you have been that person in my own life, Sunam. And so it, it, for me, begs the question is that, you know, I often reflect on that. What's the purpose? What's the function of a Buddhist monastic or, or a meditation teacher? You know, whatever name we put on it. And looking across from you, you know, right now, having just read this story, heard you read this story, that's what comes up is, you know, to, um, to model that kind of stability. Well, it is, I don't think it's a modeling. I think it, it's as you bring out who you really, really are, yeah. that it is that uh, calm, centered person at peace with themselves. And it, it, it's just reflected yeah. in, in the people you come into contact with. How can they not experience you yeah. the same way that you experience them. Yeah, it's very so, spacious. Yeah, that's the that's the beauty of this kind of training. And and, and when you were talking earlier about this fear, yeah. well, fear largely of death, although you might have other things that you're thinking uh, are intermediary to that, bring people to religious institutions. Yeah. You go to some and they give you kind of a sedative. If you do all the right things, you're going to go someplace. Well, unfortunately, in Zen culture in particular, we don't do that. Right. We, we actually want to develop the insight right. that sees exactly what this world is all about yeah. and how, how we fit completely in it. We're part of the natural process, even though we deny it at every turn and yeah. try to manipulate the natural process, and it always backfires. So what I hear you saying is that if you're sitting in the center of who you really, really are, you know, the whole world is, you know, completely chaotic. Things are moving, you know, coming and going, uh, rising and falling, living and dying, like left, right, and center. But who you really, really are is sitting in the midst of that in that kind of space of awareness. And so you're not really subject to all of that chaos. You're w witnessing it, so to speak. Is that right? Well, and I think, you know, you don't want to slant at all that, yes, there there's a certain amount of chaos going on in the world, but there's also a lot of beauty in the world. I mean, yeah. we still have the Rocky Mountains and the Smoky Mountains, <laughs> right. and we have here in Michigan the Great Lakes, and right. the people on the coast have the ocean. Right. So there's a whole lot working in our favor, right. And but largely as human beings, we're working against what the, the, uh, nature, the way it's unfolding, when it's not satisfactory to us, we would like to change it. For example, if we could actually, in the cities, a lot of people would like to stop the snow from coming down so that we don't have to shovel. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. But it's part of the process. Right. It's the reason I've gotten you up here for 25 years at 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning to shovel the snow for people walking down the street, for right. people coming to the Zen Center. Right. That's part of the transformation. Like, it's out there. It's, 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 it doesn't have any other purpose that we, can, we can't say, well, we're being good people, we're shoveling. No, it's, a lar it's larger than that. Right. It's part of a, a, the, the transformation of everything in our culture, including us, when we allow it to let it happen. Yeah. Responding to circumstances yeah. Yeah. without trying to change them. Well, thank you, 
for uh, the story and your your insights. So we are going to um, be we're in at, at the final stages of uh, of purchasing a retreat center and a hermitage up in the upper peninsula of Michigan next month. So the next podcast we do is going to be uh, up there on the shores of Lake Superior. I wonder if you'd just like to say uh, say anything in closing. Well, I think that the maybe the simplest advice you can give people even though it would be easier said than done, is that embrace whatever comes and don't chase after whatever leaves. Okay, thank you, Senator.